This is the Public Radio Hour, and today we present the third installment of our series, learning more about Alabama's new normal amid our COVID-19 reality. In the next hour, you'll learn about how the public library is recording history with its new pandemic survey. Future researchers are going to want to know what our lives were like here in Madison County during the COVID-19 pandemic. Some restaurants are reopening under mandated safety restrictions, but a local bake shop asks, is it worth it? If you can only serve, you know, 10% or whatever of your dining space, it's almost easier just to stick with the model of to-go only. The U.S. Space and Rocket Center has laid off hundreds of workers, and its remaining crew are searching for ways to safely reopen the museum and space camp. Everything is on pause. But it's not stopped. So we're on pause, but we will fly again. And we'll hear more ways you can use science to keep yourself and others safe. That's next on the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville our weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features. I'm your host, Katie Ganaway, with Brett Tannehill Producing. This is the third installment of our series exploring Alabama's new normal during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Tonight, we visit the U.S. Space and Rocket Center to learn why it made the heartbreaking decision to temporarily close its doors and lay off hundreds of its workers. Shalise Worthy, archivist at the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library, is using her special skills to preserve our our unique experiences in this historic moment. And Dr. Lamb, VP of Educational Outreach at Hudson Alpha, is back to give us more insight into the science of safety against COVID-19. We first talk with Andrew Judge, owner and operator of Sugarbell, a local cupcakery in Huntsville. As MainStreet.org reports, 7.5 million American small businesses face permanent closure due to anxieties around the current health crisis. But there are small business-specific resources out there, which Judge says have greatly benefited his shop. Uh, yeah, we have turned to some resources. You know, As soon as they became available, we applied for the SBA's IDA loan program as well as the PPP and did receive some funding through both of those, which is fortunate for us, which allowed us to continue to take care of operating expenses and pay our employees. Pretty small operation, but it was still good to have those resources since we were closed for, I don't know, a month, two months. Yeah, it's hard to keep track of time anymore, but that's definitely helped out. And we also uh, applied for the the local Facebook grant program. Uh, We haven't heard anything back from that yet. Isn't that like a newer thing? That it is a newer out? thing. Um, so yeah, Facebook has been has decided to provide some grant money to businesses in towns that they operate. So since there's a Facebook data center here that's being built currently, this is one of those cities. I think they did just come out with some of the specifics, and it's it's going to be pretty limited, I think, and and who gets what. But I think they also donated some money to another nonprofit here, Neighborhood Concepts, that provides uh, grants and, and loans on their own, and so we may apply for money through that. So before you applied for any of those uh, loans or grants or anything, what were your thoughts? Like, what were your, did you have any fears going through your head uh, about the business? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, we had no idea what was going to happen, you know, how long this was going to, you know, we still don't know really how long this is going to to uh, to affect us, especially even as, you know, some businesses are trying to open some form of dine-in and things like that. Like, you know, how is this going to, to work long-term? We don't, we don't know. So it's definitely been tricky. Yeah, so you were closed for a while, but you jumped in at one point and decided, we're going to open up a little bit for Saturdays. Yes. So you know, the big thing is, you know, we're so close to campus, we get a lot of students. To UAH, yeah. At, yeah, at UAH. And, you know, as soon as they announced that campus was closing, uh, we had a ton of students that very next day, and then everyone was gone. And uh, it was just very um, just very slow without that uh, UAH traffic and student traffic. Um, but Saturday is a really busy day for us. We do uh, donuts one day a week on Saturdays. And uh, so we have a lot of traffic on that day. And so we decided, you know, let's, let's just open on Saturdays for a while. We kind of gave it a little name. We call it Saturday Morning Breakfast Club. And... For with Mr. Weeks. T on the as the face yeah, of it, yeah, <laughs> we'd, we'd promote it with like you know old you know Saturday morning cartoon stuff, 
and uh, we would we would do a pretty solid business. It was like running a pop up every Saturday. It was you know kind of kind of hot and heavy there with with orders. I would imagine it would be a lot busier on you know a Saturday during the pandemic than a, a regular Saturday. Like you do, you are. I've been here on Saturdays before pre pandemic, and it's been super busy. But like this time around, how how was it? Uh, you know, it was, it was, some Saturdays were busier than others. We were definitely having to keep up number wise. Like, oh, this is a lot busier. A lot of it was just, we were doing more business in the same amount of time since we were using an app to, to do curbside orders as well. We were getting people walking in and getting curbside orders and call-ins at the same time. And so it was just kind of, uh, multiplied by the, I guess the density of ordering, within the same amount of time. And that app, Clusive, I would imagine that's another helpful resource to you yes. guys. Yes, so yeah, we've got a, an app that's kind of designed for coffee shops. We, we started using it a couple of years ago, but no one really picked up on it. Hmm. Um, it's made by just a small development company in um, somewhere in North Carolina, I think. And uh, we decided to pull it back out kind of to use it, and people have picked up on it now. There's another coffee shop or two in town that are using it now as well. And that's, uh, that's helped out quite a bit. We were talking about how you were open for Saturdays, and eventually you were able to do more than that. You were able to go back to normal hours. But pre-pandemic, you had events here even, like game nights and songwriter open mics. Do you have any idea of like when that would come back as the, the orders keep coming from Governor Ivey? I have no idea, and, and that's, that's the thing. And another aspect of the place here is we also have, like, old video games, retro video games set up for people to play. And obviously that's a very <laughs> dangerous kind of high contact thing. Right. We pulled all that stuff out, you know, as soon as uh, a lot of these orders came in uh, just to protect people. So yeah, I have no idea when we're going to return to normal on, you know, some of these events and things. Uh, obviously people are getting creative with ways to do distance events, streaming things and, and sort of drive in kind of things. Oh, give I, me an example. I want to hear Oh, I mean, for us, I don't know. But, you know, I know um, at the camp has just announced that they're going to do, like, a drive-in movie night. Um, you know, we, we, some of the uh, the artists we know that we've worked with have done, like, streaming music events. So I don't know if we'll do anything like that, but those are some, some kind of new adjusted ideas during this time. And what, in your opinion, does the new normal look like for Sugar Bell? Uh, I don't know yet. I mean, part of the reason we reduced... When we were operating to begin with, is some of our staff's immunocompromised too, and we, we don't want to make anyone work that doesn't feel comfortable. We are still trying to pay everyone through this time, regardless. Um, I don't know what the new normal looks like. Some places have, have chosen to reopen dining. Uh, we, we're still takeout only. You, know, you can come inside and order and, and take things to go. And why, why did you make that decision? Well, you know, I just don't know, especially now. It seems like there's still plenty of people who are concerned with dining in. So some of the restaurants we've already talked to that have opened up, especially those that have full-service uh, kitchens that have servers and whatnot, you know, if you can only serve, you know, 10% or 20% or whatever of your dining space, you don't really make that much more money by having servers or, or doing the work to, to, to keep your tables clean and sanitized and all that stuff. It's almost easier just to stick with the model of to-go only. And this may be the new normal for a while for us. When you have somebody come in without a mask on, without gloves on, without any kind of PPE on, what goes through your mind? You know, uh, you know, people are going to make their own choices. We we've thought about you know requiring people to have masks, like some places have. Uh, we don't really want to have to do that unless we also have masks that we can provide to people. And we have ordered some more. Uh, just we found a, a resource for some disposable ones that we can uh, have on hand. You know, obviously, we encourage people. We all have them on staff. That's a requirement by the state health department right now during this time. So thinking back to quarantine times with you and your wife, Lee, what sort of things were you thinking about in planning for the Saturday donuts, planning for new operating hours? Um, what sort of thoughts did you guys bat around? The nice thing about quarantine was that it definitely gave us some time to to just stop and think. When you know when you're operating as a business every day, you don't always have a lot of time to just kind of like to pull back and and look at everything and go, okay, what are we doing? Is there anything we can change? So this was kind of nice in that way uh, to look and see, you know, how are things operating? What can we change? And uh, so we decided, you know, that, that obviously gave us 
you know, a better opportunity to think about some of the flavors and things we do give us more time when we're not working every day. And so the first day back to fuller hours, what was it like? What was the customer response like? Oh, well, the very first thing uh, that happened was the coffee maker uh, overflowed. (laughs) 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 We got coffee all over the counter and table. It's a little older and it was a little screwy. So Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what happened there. So that's, we didn't promote it overwhelmingly to begin with and after that happened i was like well this is this is good i'm glad we didn't do this because there were definitely some hiccups even though we were open once a week there were some hiccups just getting back into the flow of every day but you know that very first day we had a lot of customers come in that were and then just about every person said oh i'm so i'm so happy that you were here and you're open again because it's obvious that a lot of people you know even though that they're trying to stay safe and distance that this you know this is a part of my regular routine and I'm, i'm glad i can get some semblance of this pack and you have a lot of regulars, oh, yeah. so so I'm sure they might have been the first ones to come in. Absolutely. You know, we recognized just about everybody who came in the, the first day. Continuing on from this point on, do you think that you may have to apply for more grants as they come available or loans? Uh, th- I think that, you know, I'm definitely not going to turn anything down, especially if it's forgivable, like uh, the ones that we've applied for so far. I think we're in a comfortable spot at the moment, but uh, as we have thought of some ideas to improve what we're doing here and make it safer for people, you know, having some more funds to capitalize on those possibilities would would be great. Let's talk about employees. Yes. So I know there are a lot of small businesses that have gone under because of the pandemic. Uh, Some small businesses have had to let go their employees or furlough have you had to sit and make that decision whether because it seems like you've you've kept all your staff but have you sat down with lee or just by yourself and thought what am i going to do here do i need to even think about this yeah fortunately we haven't had to do that yet uh it is tricky like i said some saturdays when we were only open on saturdays we'd only have you know one or two people here which is not enough to, to handle what we usually do uh traffic wise so it's been difficult uh, unfortunately, we haven't had to cut anyone yet. So that hasn't been a problem for us. The one employee that you have that is immunocompromised, um, have they experienced any challenges coming back to work? Uh, I don't think so, uh, so far. You know, we're all wearing masks here. I, I think the state only requires you to, to wear them if you're interacting with customers, but we're wearing them everywhere in the, in the shop, in the kitchen, regardless. Um, because I also am sort of immunocompromised. I've got a uh, a heart rhythm uh, mm-hmm. condition, but uh, so we're all just trying to stay as safe as possible um, because, you know, one of the big scary things is that you could be asymptomatic um, and have it and spread it to people through food, and that's obviously something we don't want to do. It's great to see the community working together to uh, support small businesses and small businesses trying to to help people, you know, feel a sense of normalcy through just getting coffee every day or, or some kind of meal or something like that that they're used to. This is the new normal. You can follow Sugar Bell's Facebook page for updates on the shop as Governor Ivy continues to loosen restrictions on small business operations. This is the Public Radio Hour on member-supported 89.3 Huntsville. I'm your host, Katie Ganaway, with Brett Tannehill. We're exploring Alabama's new normal as we adjust to our strange new COVID-19 reality. The towering Saturn V rocket at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center is Huntsville's iconic landmark. It stands amid a sprawling campus that features the world-famous space camp, museums, a theater, a planetarium, and other attractions. Put all that together, and it's Alabama's most popular tourist attraction. And this should be a busy time of year. Instead, the Rocket Center is quiet and nearly empty. Safety concerns have caused the center and space camp to temporarily halt activities, and with no revenue coming in, hundreds of its workers unexpectedly found themselves filing for unemployment. The Rocket Center's director of media relations, Pat Ammons, spoke with Brett Tannehill and says with no revenue and no staff, there is no clear path forward. Pat, I'll admit I've really been thinking about this interview for several days now. Uh, it's one of the sadder stories, I think, so far in this whole uh, healthcare situation. And when I got here, I really wasn't prepared for how empty the U.S. Space and Rocket Center is. And that that's really the striking thing right now. It's, it's very empty. It's 
it's almost shocking to walk in here and see how quiet it is. This is the time of year when we would have had a thousand children a week at space camp. Uh, we would have been overrun with people visiting from all over the world. You know, a typical day for us right now, this time of year would be easily, easily 800 people walking in the door just to come to the museum, you know, sometimes as many as 2000 people, in addition to hundreds, if not a 1000 space camp students. And so to have it this quiet, and it's, it's, it's gut wrenching, really. So before we get into talking about uh, some of the layoffs that you've had to endure, let's, let's start with space camp, because I think a lot of it may I think a lot of the story may start there. I understand you had to refund millions of dollars. Uh, What happened with Space Camp and what is going to happen with Space Camp? Well, a lot of things are to be determined, of course. Um, You know, we're still, uh, as everyone else is, trying to figure out where is the virus, at what point can we safely bring people back into our property here. Space Camp is a very hands-on activity. It's very team-based activity. Confined so areas. Confined areas. So you have students who are working very closely together because that's how it works in space. So we want them to walk out of here with a sense of how it really works in, when, in the space industry. And we also want them to see their role that they could have going forward in their lives. And we know it works because we have thousands of people who are working in science and engineering and even have gone to space. So we know this works. And so now we're stepping back and saying, okay, we've been doing this for 38 years successfully, amazingly successfully. So now how do we do this and keep people safe from a virus we can't see? So that's going to be our big challenge. We have a small team of people who are trying to see what that is going to be. How do we take that program that we've done for so long and for so well and cut it into a much smaller program that can ensure social distancing? The new normal for space camp. You know, for the time being, you know, we, I think we all hope that we can get back to business as usual, but until we have a vaccine, until we know that people can be safe, we have to look at things differently. So we're looking at coming back with much reduced numbers. Um, we hope to reopen Space Camp on June 28th. So we have children registered. They are chomping at the bit to get here. They are so ready. Their parents are so ready. Uh, we've had just incredible outpouring of support from our alumni base and just people in general who just want us to be here because they know that the work we do here is so important. Give our listeners a sense of how big of a connection there is between Space Camp and the revenue needed to run the U.S. Space and Rocket Center and how that ties into the the layoffs that you've seen. You know, I think it's a big surprise for people to realize that we are self-operational. We are self-sustaining operationally. So we're not open. We're not earning any income. So we get some money from the state, but that's, that money goes directly to support students from Alabama coming to space camp and also field trips as well as teachers. Right. So that's not operational. operational. That's right. not operational money. We don't receive any money from the federal government. People think because we're NASA Marshall Space Flight Center's visitor center that we surely get money from NASA. We don't. We earn our money from every person who walks in the door and buys a ticket and every child who comes to space camp. Those have been on lockdown, closed completely for over two months now. So how does that tie to the, to the decision to lay off so many people? Well, you know, we, we started off to 2020 after a phenomenal 2019. We had more visitors than we'd ever had in our 50-year history. Phenomenal record-breaking numbers in space camp. Just one of the most exciting times you could have imagined. We started off 2020 just hot. We were just, we were seeing visitor coming in the door at three and four times the expected rate. We were just really just so excited about 2020. We just thought, you know, people are so aware what's going on in the space industry right now. The, the level of awareness the Apollo 11 50th anniversary brought to space and also to the Rocket Center was just phenomenal. So we were riding high, and we, we had some money in the bank. We, we had some projects we were about to get started on um, because we are a nonprofit, too. That is something other people 
also don't understand is that we are a public nonprofit. So we are, while we are an agency of the state of Alabama, we were designed and set up to support ourselves. So we don't get funding from the state like another state agency would. So that said, here we go, 2020, here we come. And then it comes to a screeching halt. So that means no people coming in the door to see the museum, no children at space camp, no, no revenue. And I think the shocking thing is how you can go from, uh, like you said, just record-breaking numbers at space camp, huge success coming off the 50th anniversary of the moon landing and everything that surrounded that, to having to lay off a, a, a third of the people. I mean, you just said there there was money in the bank. I'm trying to trying to wrap trying my to make your yeah. This. I mean, well, this is an extremely expensive operation to support. I mean, just to um, pay the bills every month is shockingly expensive you know you just look at the size of this place and just imagine what it's like just to even keep the lights on you know the bills here are very high we have um our staff was much higher than i think most people probably realized we had 280 full-time employees so that's 280 employees whose benefits you're sustaining you also have um you know we have at this time of year we had close to 500 part-time employees we would have been up to over a thousand total employees by july if we were on our on our record on our paces that we normally would have so just the expenses that we have just to be open just with lights on is more than we could sustain with no income so to further complicate things you're also still in the process of hiring a new CEO, Dr. Barnhart, right. uh, left uh, last year. Right. She retired in December. So how is that going, and how has this current situation impacted well, that progress? you know, Louis Ramirez, who had been our CFO um, under Dr. Barnhart, had stepped in to be our interim CEO and executive director. It was supposed to be a short-term process while we did a nationwide search for a new director. We've had... Um, uh, a group that's been pouring through the very many applications that we received for that position. Um, when this happened, of course, when we closed the doors on March 13th, um, it became necessary to sort of put that on hold as well. Um, you know, this is a big, complex organization. You know, we are a museum. We are a camp. We serve a thousand children, three meals a day. We have a public grill. We are a special events facility with a catering staff. We are a hotel that sleeps where thousand, almost a thousand people sleep. It's a huge, complex organization. So it's not one that someone can necessarily step easily into and certainly not in the middle of a crisis like this. So for the time being, the, I mean, the, the CEO search is still on, of course, uh, but it has been pushed back just a little bit until we can sort through things and, and start moving back towards some sense of normalcy. We're talking with Pat Ammons, the Director of Media Relations at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center here on the Public Radio Hour. And Pat, over the past couple of episodes, we've been exploring uh, Alabama's new normal as uh, different businesses and different sectors of our society try to reopen and, you know, kind of grapple with this weird COVID-19 reality we're all facing. Um, and here at the Rocket Center, uh, you mentioned, as, as you said, it's, it's a, a far-reaching operation. Uh, the museum itself uh, has a lot of chance for exposure and that sort of thing. Um, how will the Rocket Center move ahead? Are you still sort of waiting for more guidelines, waiting for more information? How, what is the, the next step? How do you move ahead? Well, certainly we are. And because we don't fall into any kind of neat category, we are we are retail. We have a big gift shop. So we're retail. Right. We're a restaurant because we how, have How are you classified, grill. actually? Multiple ways. Uh -huh. So we're an educational facility. We're also an entertainment facility. So we don't neatly fall into any box. We haven't fallen in neatly into any of the boxes period. Any of the CARES Act boxes we don't fall into. Right, right. We're not a small business. So there's a lot of things there that uh, people have said to me, well, haven't, where's the help for you? And we don't fall into the categories that exist currently. So with the uh, 
situation that we are such a complex and complicated organization, we are right now awaiting guidance from the governor's office and the State Department of Health as to how we can safely reopen the museum. And that's what will come first. Um, We are already making some measures towards that. Um, I was in the Davidson Center last week, um, and one of our technicians was in there laying down arrows to create a pathway for uh, movement throughout the Davidson Center, which, of course, as you know, is a giant facility. Right, right. But nonetheless, trying to create traffic flow problems patterns so that people can keep socially distant from each other so that we can try to stay as safe as possible. Like I said, on a day, normal weekend day, we could easily have 1,500 to 2,000 people in this door, in the doors. We can't open with that many people. We know that because we can't keep people apart from each other that much. So there's still a working towards a plan as to what exactly that's going to look like when we reopen. We do hope to be open at least in sort of a soft opening next week sometime, but that is still to be determined based on what we might hear from Montgomery. Well, we've talked a lot about the the things that that you don't know about. What do you know about the U.S. Space and Rocket Center that you can tell listeners? What what can you tell us? Uh, I can tell you that the outpouring of support has been amazing. Um, Monday when the news broke about the uh, layoffs, uh, you know, the first reaction everybody had, I think, was stunned. They were shocked to hear how bad it was. Absolutely. Um, And then now so many people want to know how they can help, which is so gratifying. And we are we're still hopeful that our legislative delegation, who has been so um, really supportive in words, uh, and are trying to do, I think, find ways that they can help us. We're still really hopeful that we're going to get some assistance from the st- at the state level. Um, none of that is, you know, a lot of that. Let everybody, everybody's asking for help right now, and we understand that. Right. And so we are waiting to hear back on some requests that we have. We're hopeful, but we have no guarantees. Um, but right now, after Monday, um, you know, we have a nonprofit foundation that is our fundraising arm of the Rocket Center. And they have set up a, a fundraising campaign. And we're calling it Failure is Not an Option, which is a phrase that came out with the Apollo 13 um, mission that went wrong. And it was everyone leaning in and working together that got those astronauts safely home. And so that is what the name of this is. It's going to be the Failure is Not an Option campaign. And uh, you can find it at rocketcenter.com. And we are just asking for support at whatever level people can help us because we've got to have help to get through this. And this is just a, a very tiny thing uh, and just really for, for, for me maybe. Um, but like I said at the beginning of the interview, I've been thinking about this a lot for, for a number of days now. Um, but when I pulled up and I saw that there were some flowers in the flower beds and That's everything right. still looks great. It's yes. like the Rocket Center is just waiting That's to, right. to come back. That is right. And that, that made me feel good just to see that. Yeah, we are. Uh, everything is on pause but it's not stopped. So we're on pause, but we will, we will fly again. And we, uh, we're going to have to do it slowly. We're going to have to be, do it carefully. We're going to have to do it safely. But we will be back and we'll be here. We want to be here. We are, the work we do here is so important. We're here to inspire people when they walk in. And there's nothing like rounding the corner of the Davidson Center and seeing that Saturn V to just make people understand the amazing possibilities of the human mind. And we're here to inspire those young minds who come here at, in our space camp programs who do go on. I mean, this is workforce development, what we do here, and it's important. And we need to get back to the business of doing that. Pat Ammons is the Director of Media Relations at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. Pat, thanks for joining us on the Public Radio Hour. Thank you. You heard Pat Ammons say Space Camp will reopen soon, though on a limited scale. You can find a link to the U.S. Space and Rocket Center and links to other information you hear this hour at WLRH.org. Look under the Programs tab for the Public Radio Hour. We'll be right back right after this break. 
Due to coronavirus safety concerns, we're not having our traditional spring pledge week, but listeners like you are coming through in grand fashion. We're only $22,000 away from our goal, and we know we can reach it by the end of the month. If you're a renewing member or yet to make your first donation, please come on board now and do what you can to support the programs you love. Your support is critical to our operation, so we need you today. Please go to WLRH.org and click on the blue Donate button. You can make a one-time donation of any amount or become a sustaining member with a monthly donation. However you help, we hope you do it today at WLRH.org. You can also send us a letter at WLRH Public Radio, UAH Campus, John Wright's Drive, Huntsville, 35899. Thanks from all our staff and volunteers here at 89.3 Huntsville Public Radio. Arts Huntsville's new summer music series, Summer Street Jams, is every Friday and Saturday across downtown Huntsville. The series features diverse music genres from different local musicians performing at three outdoor street locations between 5.30 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. Summer Street Jams is designed to enliven downtown streets with live local music as patrons return to area restaurants and businesses while social distancing. Information about weekly performances is on the Arts Huntsville Facebook page. Next time on City Arts and Lectures, we consider the manipulative power of technology. Tristan Harris will talk to Jacob Ward about the profound and negative effects of tech companies' unmitigated race for our attention. From shortened attention spans to increased mental health issues, is the online world lawless or is structural change possible? Catch City Arts and Lectures here Thursday nights at 8 on 89.3 HD1 WLRH. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville. I'm Katie Ganaway. We often rely on our local libraries to help us perfect our resumes or maybe to provide our children with engaging in educational programs, among many other public services. Alabama's new normal has put those services on hiatus, except for one. As time has gone by and Governor Ivey's orders have loosened, the Special Collections Department at the Downtown Huntsville Library realized now is a great time to start capturing the experiences of Madison County patrons as the COVID-19 situation continues. I sat down with Shalice Worthy, archivist with the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library, to learn more about the pandemic survey. You don't always know that you're living in a historic moment, um, but right now it's a golden opportunity for archivists because we know that future researchers are, are going to want to know what our lives were like here in Madison County during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, so we've put together a questionnaire. It's about 22 questions, and you can skip over um, you know, whatever question doesn't apply to you. The questions are kind of general, um, and we just we want to know what people in Madison County are experiencing, um, you know, what they're feeling. And you also have the opportunity to upload pictures um, or any kind of media, you know, poems, short stories, artwork, whatever you've been inspired to create uh, during this time. With this survey, I imagine there may be some populations here in Madison County that may not have internet access um, or, you know, during the pandemic, they can't come into the library and use the computer. So is there any sort of plan to have like mail outs for them or? Wow, that's a really great question. Um, What I would encourage them to do is to keep a daily journal or a weekly journal or to um, try to write down their experience a little bit. And then uh, once we're back open to the public, they can bring it by and we can we can um, keep those records in the archives. So um, maybe going for like a little bit more of an analog approach. This is a historic preservation type of project. What do you hope that folks get out of this, you know, here in a few years in the future or longer into the future and looking back on these um, digitized responses. What do you hope that they get from this in the future? Well, talking about now, I, I we're going to put them on our digital archive and we're going to make them anonymous. So I don't want people to worry about that. Um, but I think it's it's important to, you know, for people living now, I think they're curious about what is happening with other people. I know I was when they when the responses started coming in. Um, 
so many people are concerned about money or how they're going to um, educate their children or what the future is like. There's a lot of uncertainty. So it's I think it's healing to um, put your story out there. And I think it's healing for people to read other people's stories and know that they're not alone, especially in a time where we're not able to see each other um, like we were able to. Um, and in the future, I think historians are going to be super interested in what life was like now, um, what, you know, what people thought of how the local government and the federal government are um, dealing with this and how they're responding to it, how local businesses have responded to it, how they've stepped up. Um, And there's just such a, there's an array of opinions. So I think it's going to be really interesting for for future researchers to have this goldmine of information about the COVID-19 pandemic. It's sort of like a game plan for the future, right? Like Absolutely. And we don't always get to have a game plan. So <laughs> it's really cool to be able to uh, record people's experiences. Right. You know, with that mention of a game plan, there we have, you know, gone through something like this before back with the, the Spanish flu of 1918 yeah. or that uh, large pandemic back then. And it seems like... Um, we're not really learning from that. We're we're trying our best to like improve upon what we did back then, but maybe we're seeing some similarities. So, how do you think that we can prevent that in the future? Yeah, I uh, well, in 1918 um, in Huntsville, mm-hmm. a lot of people were responding to the pandemic similarly to how we're responding to it now. Um, they canceled large events. Well, they canceled all events. People were afraid to go out. Um, They, you know, didn't really see people besides people in their immediate family. Um, So a lot of what we're doing right now, um, in 1918, so we are definitely in a better place now, um, just because we have more advanced medical care. Um, A lot of of the physicians and people in the medical profession in Huntsville in 1918 were dying. Um, A lot of them died. So um, definitely, you know, we're in a better position now, but um, definitely just think about our frontline workers and, and how those people are uh, really sacrificing so much of their life um, to care for us during this pandemic. So can you give us a, a sort of example of what people will be answering? So some of these generic questions you mentioned. Like I said, they're, they're pretty general. We want to know how you've been impacted the most you know, during the pandemic, what your concerns are. Um, do you know anyone who's had the virus? Um, and then how, we want to know how you prepared for the pandemic. Um, and and then, of course, questions about how the community responded and local regov- how local government responded to the pandemic. So mm-hmm. fairly general. And um, we've had some really amazing responses so far. One of the first ones that came in was um, from a first responder. And so he let us know, you know, how his job changed because of the pandemic. And he sent us some great pictures of him and all of his extra protective um, wear that he has to wear you know, when he's responding to house calls. So where where can people go to respond to this survey? Or has it been emailed out? Or If you follow us on Facebook, yeah, while you're there, like us and follow us on Facebook. Um, you can search HMCPL Special Collections or you can search HMCPLSC on Facebook. And the, the survey is pinned to the top of the page, so it should be pretty easy to find. Uh, you can also go to the library's website, hmcpl.org org under latest news and uh, there should be a link there so you can fill out the survey that way and then also the library's blog um, which is written down here yeah blog.hmcpl.org so it's on all three of those places and you know just give me a call in special collections if you want to contribute but you don't have the tools to do that um, online right now. I'm, I'd love to talk to people and I would love to help. One last thing about the, the pandemic survey, that is going, the responses as they're digitized, that's going to be turned into an exhibit? Well, it, it's actually going to be on our digital archive. Okay. Um, and um, that's digitalarchives.hmcpl.org. Um, and there's a lot, also a lot of other cool stuff on our digital archives, a lot of iconic historic Huntsville photographs. So I highly recommend 
pop in over there to see them. And we'll definitely post once the um, the pandemic survey is up, we'll definitely post about it on our Facebook page. So if, if people are interested, give us a like, give us a follow on our Facebook page, because that's where we um, update, you know, our department information. Okay. And is there anything else that you'd like to add today? Stay safe and stay sane and wash your hands. You can visit hmcpl.org to learn more about how they're working around coronavirus challenges and find a link to the pandemic survey on the podcasted version of this episode, located on our website, wlrh.org. This is the Public Radio Hour on member-supported 89.3 Huntsville. I'm Katie Ganaway with Brett Tannehill. We'll close the show with another visit from Dr. Neil Lamb, the Vice President of Educational Outreach at the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. He's been providing us with scientific insight into the growing pandemic and helping us understand the best ways we can keep ourselves and others safe and healthy. He spoke with Brett Tannehill. Dr. Lamb, we're continuing to see a rising number of COVID-19 cases across Alabama. And as you might have noticed in Montgomery, it's gotten especially bad. Uh, Local hospitals down there are running out of space in the intensive care units, and patients are being transferred from Montgomery to Birmingham. And here in North Alabama, Marshall County is seeing a boom in its number of cases. What do you make of this? What do you think when you see this sort of thing happening? It does not surprise me. I, I think all along we have expected that we would see periodic rises and falls. We would see peaks in different parts of the state and certainly in different parts of the country as the virus continues uh, its, mar- its march across the world. Um, we should remember the vast majority of us have no immunity against this. And so it's not surprising that we would see people continue to become infected. And uh, some of those, a percentage of those needing becoming significantly ill and needing hospitalization. Uh, some of the cases, case numbers are increasing because we are offering more tests and we've extended the, the conditions for testing beyond simply someone who is symptomatic. So some of that increase is because we are catching more of the, more of the cases. Um, but I, again, I think some of the numbers increasing is because we are beginning to um, step back out or we're in communities where um, people are in jobs where social distancing becomes really challenging. And if you find if the virus gains a foothold in that workplace or in that community, it's going to become really difficult to slow it. You've said in past conversations here with us on the Public Radio Hour that developing an effective vaccine will be the real game changer. And by now, we know this is going to take uh, a good amount of time. If you could give us a little more specific insight into what goes into making a vaccine and then making sure it's safe for people to use. So there are multiple steps in the making of a vaccine, and a lot of that starts um, in the lab um, before we ever begin talking about human clinical trials. So identifying a potential approach to making a vaccine, um, testing a vaccine on cells, testing a vaccine in laboratory animals like mice, um, and then doing clinical trials in humans. And there are multiple stages, generally th- at least three stages in human clinical trials. Phase one trials are really small. You're talking about maybe um, a dozen or a, a couple dozen volunteers. And you're really testing, is the vaccine safe? Does it have major um, problems in terms of of health or safety. You aren't so concerned about, is it actually providing immunity, although you may be checking that. Stage two is usually several dozen or a few hundred individuals being tested. And at that point, you're now saying, is this providing immunity? Is this generating an immune response? And you're also looking, again, for safety and for dosage. And then phase phase three is when you are testing thousands or tens of thousands of individuals, and some of them get the vaccine and some of them get a placebo, and then you follow them through months of time and see at the end of that window how many of them actually contracted whatever the vaccine is supposed to protect you against. 
We've talked a little bit about the possibility of contracting this coronavirus from items purchased at the grocery store, and you and others have said that uh, it's important for everyone to do what makes them feel the safest, but also that washing your hands is probably more effective than washing your grocery items. Uh, Could you follow up on that a little bit and provide a little more context? Uh, We know from some of the papers that have come out, from some of the research that's been done, that yes, the virus certainly can survive if it lands on on a cardboard or a plastic surface. But that survivability drops really rapidly and over a relatively short period of time. In some cases, it's a few hours. In some cases, it's a, it's a day or two. But the likelihood that you have somebody who's infectious who has coughed on your box of Captain Crunch at the grocery store and is still has live virus when you pick it up and bring it home and then touch your face to your mouth, each of those chains has a, has a probability, a relatively low probability. And you can break that chain by, if you touch the box, making sure that you wash your hands before you then, you know, touch any other part of your, of your body. I think it is not necessarily the best use of what are still limited amounts of cleaning supplies and cleaning wipes for us to be wiping down boxes and bags. Uh, but again, I recognize different people have different tolerances for risk, and um, some individuals may be trying to do everything they can to minimize every bit of risk. I think the challenge with that is in our brains, continually wiping every box that comes in from the grocery store puts us on a state of even higher alert than potentially we we should be. But that's not to say we shouldn't be practicing good hygiene for our hands and being aware of things like minimizing the number of things we touch and interact. But I think we would be better served just thinking about how do I make sure I've washed my hands after I brought the groceries in and have I, you know, have I practiced good hand hygiene than focusing heavily on do I need to be washing every box that comes in my house? Today was one of those uh, very rare times over the past couple of months that I actually went through a fast food drive through to grab some lunch. And uh, Dr. Lamb, when I got to the window, the cashier had a mask, but she was wearing it around her neck below her chin. She didn't actually have it on. And, of course, you see that, and or I saw that, and it made me a little wary. So tell us, how, how might a person become infected getting takeout food, and what is the likelihood of that happening? Remember that we know the virus spreads through respiratory droplets that come out of our mouth and nose. So sneezing, coughing, yelling, singing, talking. If someone is infected, they can be passing along those droplets. We wear masks to help contain those droplets so that we are not spreading them to other individuals. Um, And you're right. I see all sorts of improper mask wearing where my nose is showing or my upper lip is showing or I've pushed it up above my forehead or I um, am taking my mask down so that I can cough and then putting my mask back up again. (laughs) That's my favorite. Um, Yes. And I get it. These are not comfortable. This is frustrating. This is not something that that we intentionally, willingly choose to do. But we do take it on because it is a way that we can protect those around us. And the way that we can slow the spread of the virus is by each of us doing what we can to protect those around us. I would be less concerned about the individual at the drive-thru who's handing you your food unless they cough or sneeze on the bag. And if they cough or sneeze on the bag, then I think it is well within your rights to call that out and to, and to be cautious about that. But otherwise? Otherwise, the food is in the bag. The bag is presumably closed. We do not see um, instances of the virus being transmitted in prepared food, especially in hot food. You know, I think you just want to be aware of it. You want to be sensitive to it. And yes, you want to be cautious if there's a direct cough or sneeze on the food. 
And one reason I bring this up is we're coming up on Memorial Day weekend. Uh, lots of people will be heading out to various places uh, for vacation. Uh, lots of people will be staying home as well. I saw a statistic where uh, the Alabama beaches are just seeing just crazy crowds. They've seen something like 700,000 visitors just in the past few weeks. Uh, so if people are going out on vacation, uh, Dr. Lamb, what are some of the danger signs they might be looking for and how might they best protect themselves in a public place? That's a great set of questions. And we should recognize that as we begin to take steps back towards um, towards engaging with each other, that we are going to want to go places. We are going to want to see something different than the insides of our house and just the streets in our neighborhood. So again, I think it comes back to you want to be actively practicing social distancing. So if you are going to a place where it is wall-to-wall people, whether that is the beach or whether that is a campground or, or some other place, you want to be really cautious about stepping into something where there are people all around you, especially people all around you where you are staying in one place for a long period of time. Outdoors is better because there's more air to dilute any virus that might be present, and there are breezes. But spending a lot of time in a crowded restaurant, uh, going into a bar, if you're traveling to a state that has opened up bars, um, those, are, those, are challenge, those are high-risk places. Um, you just need to be aware of what that risk is. Continue to wear your mask. Continue to practice social distancing. You can go somewhere on vacation and have a spectacular time. You drive yourself there. You, um, you don't interact with a whole lot of other people around you, except for the people in your household that have traveled with you. Um, it, 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 again, it just comes back to being aware of what it means to be in spaces with lots of people, especially indoors. We've been talking with Dr. Neil Lamb, the Vice President for Educational Outreach at the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. Dr. Lamb, as always, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Dr. Lamb is also producing a series of informational videos titled Shareable Science Beyond the Blog. Find it at HudsonAlpha.org. Thanks again to Dr. Lamb, Shalise Worthy, and the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library, Andrew Judge and the Sugar Bell Crew, and Pat Ammons and the U.S. Space and Rocket Center for being part of this episode at the Public Radio Hour. Our series exploring Alabama's new normal concludes next week. You can also listen to the podcasts from past programs on the award-winning WLRH mobile app and at WLRH.org. Look under the program's tab for the Public Radio Hour. You'll also find our info about COVID-19, resources for students and families, and our How to Help in the Tennessee Valley pages. Tune in to the Public Radio Hour Thursday nights at 7 here on 89.3 FM HD 1. We hope you'll continue to sanitize and practice proper social distancing. Good night, everyone.